Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jessica Jones Podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Just give me a heads up if you're actually going to rally. The Jessica Jones Podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 302, a.k.a. You're Welcome, is brought to you by Halloween Adventure New York Costumes. Hell no. Pete, I feel so lucky that here we are. We're talking Jessica Jones. Meanwhile, what, just yesterday we were talking the latest episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Looking ahead on the calendar, we're a handful of weeks away from Spider-Man Far From Home. Just an awesome time to be digging into the MCU. It is. Why don't you take us, Matt, to your recap? Well, good timing, Pete, because it's time for some surveillance. Let's see what the episode was all about. The episode is written by Hilly Hicks Jr., veteran of all three seasons of Jessica Jones, as well as a writer and producer going back to The Big C, Army Wives, and Pasadena. The episode is directed by newcomer Kristen Ritter. Previously on Jessica Jones, Trish has cat-like reflexes. She gets into the elevator after catching her phone. She wants to do something special, but now can't even foot-catch her phone. Screen smash! But on the street, her senses seem heightened. Cat vision, anyone? Time passes and she's training, with parkour. We see successes and failures, too. With so many hero montages since 2002's Spider-Man, the lack of success turning into success is refreshing. Trish has got her powers down. Now what? She essentially bings how to be a hero and circles back to Jessica. Ultimately, Trish gets a coffee with Mom, like literally a coffee, who recaps in a sentence the troubles of season two. Mom's ready to manage this new career as well. Won't Trish go on that celebrity dance show, maybe be the new face of fashion for a Tampa company? Trish leaves, listening to the police scanner app, looking for crime. She initially finds the mundane and unheroic, until she hears about a robbery in progress, and near her too. She arrives to the NYPD already apprehending the perps. From afar, she sees Jessica and calls her. Jess sends it to voicemail. Finally, Trish chases a phone thief, knocking him down with a roundhouse kick. He's stunned, but wait, it's Patsy. And the phone is returned to the owner. Hey, it's Patsy. Time for Patsy to get a costume, er, uniform, er, disguise. The closest she gets is Hellcat Spandex, to which she says, hell no. The solution? A knit cap and scarf pulled up. At the gym, she meets a fan who confirms she's Trish Walker and gets served legal papers by Hurt Neck Guy. He's so hurt, and Trish doesn't understand how a hero can be sued. Jerry Hogarth's ready to help, but doesn't do piecemeal. Defense lawyer today, entertainment lawyer tomorrow. Jerry's even got an investigator to help, too. It's Malcolm. They recap season two, and Malcolm won't worry about the morality of his job. On her way out, She pilfers the files of acquitted baddies. In her apartment, not a redress of Matt Murdock's apartment set, Mom visits. Trish contends she is simplifying her life. Mom's set to begin scrubbing the stove, and that night, Trish tails a baddie. She sees him slip roofies into a date's drink and tails the couple as he gets ready to take advantage. Trish catches up and kicks him where he's best kicked. The girl is told about his past and that the police are on the way. 
chalk one up for the good gals tonight. Later, Trish is outside Jessica's apartment. She sees Oscar returning a sweater to Jessica. Looks like things didn't work out. He's ready to move on, and they're both bittersweet about the past. Trish is back in training and bests the trainer. His shirt comes off, then more. Later, the trainer is watching Expositional News Network and a story about Andrew Brandt, who hired thugs to beat up his sister over a statue. Knock, knock, Malcolm's there to update her on the case. Fifty grand, and it's over. Malcolm found dirt on the phone thief. The thief's been lying to his son, the boy he loves. He's not actually the boy's father, and Malcolm called the thief, called the son, on it. Malcolm broke the man down to get Trish's settlement settled. It's the job, and it pays the bills. Time for Trish to do the same. Style by Trish, and it's also technicolor and plastic perfect, including talking a divorcee non-buyer into buying those new cardigans for herself. During a break, she checks in with the Brant case. If only there was proof about the statue. Later, she's researching Brant and wishes Jessica would team up with her. But Jessica doesn't team up, except in season one with Luke Cage and the Defenders and kind of with Mom in season two. But anyway, Trish sneaks in to Brant's apartment and cases the joint. She finds his massive safe, but how to get in? It's not like we saw that in the last episode. Trish checks into the hotel across the street, snooping on Brant. She finally sees him open the safe, take out a gun, but can't see the statue. That night, we see her enter the apartment, and from Trish's point of view this time. Before long, Jessica arrives, and the fight is over. Trish wants to be the hero now. The next morning, Trish is ready for the next infomercial, despite having missed the last two shows. Trish feels all alone. She gets a call from Malcolm, Jessica's in the hospital, and asking for her. Jessica has survived the stabbing, and Trish has brought a few things. She also gives the name Andrew Brandt. Infuriated, Trish leaves. What suspects draw our focus in this episode, Pete? Do we start with Dorothy? I think she does some things in this episode that are certainly worthy of landing her on our list. She's pushing her daughter way too much. But at the same time, we've seen her soften. And I think that the subtlety that Rebecca de Mornay brings to the role uh, is, is nuanced. This is a believable character. And I think we're getting more of her this season than we have in past seasons, which might be weird because she shows up in a number of, you know, episodes from the first two seasons and with great force. I just feel like there's an added authenticity. Maybe it's because there's now not this space between mother and daughter and there's not the space, but well, I guess there still is a space between mother and foster daughter uh, between Dorothy and Jessica. But I don't know. Somehow I just feel like this character is clicking better than she has in past seasons. I would agree on that. And I, I think that, you know, for her to be in the space where Trish is, you know, checking out the new apartment that of course she doesn't, you know, agree with and that her daughter's given up these things. And again, trying to, to push it, but she's she's learned a little bit where her, her boundaries lie. So it's not as clear-cut as it's been with her before. 
certainly clear cut as a suspect on our list is neck hurt guy, the uh, thief turned extortionist <laughs> who does a bad thing, then tries to turn, you know, kind of street justice into a personal windfall that then gets even worse. Yeah, I mean, that Trish could stop this guy. And yes, are there people who would sue a celebrity? Of, of course there are. Um, but that it would even go as far as this when he was clearly committing a crime. I will say it is a handy mechanism, his his turn there into extortionist, it is a handy mechanism to keep our core characters together, to bring Trish to Jerry, to have Jerry call in Malcolm, to have Malcolm on the case. Uh, we have a slightly smaller main cast this year compared to prior seasons, and this is one way to keep them all kind of playing in the same sandbox. Um, Pete also getting well-deserved street justice and hopefully, you know, the long arm of the law as well is uh, Reed, the, the date rapist. The would-be date rapist. Thank goodness that Trish intervened here to save Bertie. What a DB, though. And you say would-be, yes, this time but don't forget he got acquitted yeah. on the technicality yeah. so you know uh, again in that we can very easily throw rocks at fictional characters uh, pete i think this is a guy who you know got away with it the one time and was attempting to to do it again this time and i don't know that i've ever seen a more satisfying kick to the groin on tv yeah and to watch him do this and to have the same reaction as as Trish, don't don't drink the the drink. No, don't go with him. You know she's she's already on the walk, woozy, and we just know it's going to be bad. But uh, you know Trish taking matters into her own hands keeps reaching out for for Jessica. Jessica's just not ready. It certainly was interesting to see the Trish portion of that frosty relationship as shown in this episode. Similarly, we get the backstory on Andrew Brandt. We get his name. We get the circumstances that put Trish in his apartment. And uh, also, it seems very well-deserving of being on our list. Violence towards women, a family member at that. I mean, this guy's no good, Matt. And obviously, we're going to continue to explore. Did he stand stabber to Jessica? Uh, is this uh, unrelated? We'll have to see. It certainly was an interesting presentation where we are ahead of Trish and we are ahead of kind of everyone's knowledge in this episode by virtue of having seen the prior one just in terms of a certain level of guilt that he has uh and as you say pete a certain level of guilt perhaps for for things that happened at the end of last episode and rather concurrently at the end of this episode too cryptology where we uncover hidden messages and larger themes pete let's circle back to something you just said I think the episode implies a direct line from Andrew Brandt to the stabber to the situation that Jessica ends up in being stabbed. How secure do you feel about that kind of chain of evil custody? I mean, pretty darn sure. Um, you got to remember, I've seen a little bit more, Matt, so I, I don't want to, you know, go into detail at this point. But, um, you know, the, the first time I saw it, 
there was the faintest notion that maybe it was trying to set up Trish, you know, looking similar, the, the, uh, you know, great value daredevil outfit and all. Um, but clearly this is somebody else and, uh, yeah, just, uh, have to wait and see. I think this was a very, uh, interestingly conceived episode for a variety of reasons. It's basically in flashback compared to where we were at at the end of 301. Uh, it also is an episode that focuses on Trish, has very little screen time for Kristen Ritter, Kristen Ritter directing it. Mm-hmm. Do you, what are your thoughts, Pete, on, on the notion of, was this an episode written to give Kristen Ritter, and again, no criticism against the episode, it was a very novel presentation, and I always welcome more time with supporting characters, because, you know, the main characters get plenty of spotlight, so let's mix things up, particularly in the third season, but... Do you think writer Hilly Hicks Jr. was told, hey, do an episode where we get as little Jessica Jones as possible because Kristen is directing this? Or did Kristen Ritter express a desire in directing an episode and, hey, look, here's this one that's a Trish-focused episode. This would be perfect for Kristen. I think it's a little bit of both. I think it was conceived as the perfect opportunity for her to direct a first time director directing herself, probably want to manage that as little as possible. Um, and this backstory, you know, the other 48 days of, of Trish filling it in, I thought it was a really interesting presentation. I love how it went to those margins, you know, beginning with her, uh, grabbing the uh, the phone on her foot there and then trying to do it in the elevator and she smashes her phone. Um, so I, I thought, listen, they have, they, Netflix, uh, done Kristen Ritter dirty for want of a, of a better phrase here. At least she got, in addition to this plum roll, she got her Director's Guild of America card out of it. And I think, too, this is an episode that is it's presented fairly straightforward. There's not an A plot and a B plot and a C plot. And, you know, we don't have time waves to confuse things further. And that's not to suggest that Kristen Ritter couldn't handle an episode like that. But if you're going to have a first time outing as a director to have an episode that is focusing on one character who's not played by Kristen Ritter and one that unfolds in fairly straightforward fashion i think that's a bonus all around yeah i I think it was the perfect assignment for a first-time director pete as you put your headphones in and open up your your theory scanner app what do you have there on your screen as you walk down the mean streets of manhattan so trish has the ability apparently to lighten her vision when she's at night uh, yeah, Pete, it's called cat vision. I said it in my recap. She clearly has cat vision because she's Hellcat. Oh, okay. I just wanted to, to say that aloud so it didn't sound weird. Um, she, she can also measure the spaces between things by using the edges of her hair slash whiskers. I mean, come on. This is just de rigueur for cat powers. Well, then let's let's jump ahead more critically, Matt. How about her double dare-esque inability to climb monkey bars? <sighs> I appreciate so much that, you know, we're so used to the training montage and, and uh, you know, Danny Elfman's music soars and Tobey Maguire 
the, the, the most difficult thing he has to figure out is hand formations and does he say Shazam or do or what does he say go web go you know instead here we have her unsuccessful a little successful moderately successful still falling down still messing up and i like that we get not a 15 second montage but you know maybe it's a minute long of her figuring out how to be this hero that she wants to be matt what about trish's intervention to stop this thief with the stolen phone is is this legitimate can this happen and can it can it blow back on you Certainly the way Jerry breaks it down, you know, you kind of go, oh, um, she wasn't in duress and she did kick a guy and, you know, she wasn't directly uh, kind of involved in the situation. So I don't know where, you know, the, the law in our real world would land on it. I suspect probably a similar point, but Jerry spells it out for the MCU very clearly that, you know, this is why this is why this has gone down how it is in the back of my head i was like well if this never happens to spider-man oh he's got a mask or daredevil oh he's got a mask etc etc um obviously not every you know mcu character wears a mask but enough do especially if you're going to be a, a street level hero cover up that face especially if you're a multi-generational uh you know or that is to say a celebrity who has been appreciated by multiple generations got to keep things anonymous how about them Hellcat costumes? That was a really fun bit of story. And, you know, harkens back to X-Men 2000, you know. Um, and, and what'd you expect? Yellow spandex. Well, here we have literally the yellow spandex. And, of course, the Hellcat costume looks cool on the page. And then you put it on Rachel Taylor. You just transfer it directly and you go, oh, my goodness, this looks like something that's not even worthy of the lowliest, you know, WB show or, you know, <laughs> couldn't even, you know, pass muster for Lois and Clark back in 1995 or things of that sort. And it's a fun moment. It's a fun nod. And it's a fun reminder that what we're watching is guided by different rules than the comic origin. Let's not forget, too, she attempted to do this with Jessica. So for her to come back to this, I think, is a great point of symmetry from season one to season three as we're watching the the rise of Hellcat. Hopefully we can see the two of them team up in season four. Oh, now I just want to cry. Ugh. Hopefully before the end of the season. I did appreciate how they took the the gritty, the realistic view of the costume. So she finds the hat in the trunk that has the little embellishments that kind of point up like ears. And she's wearing the, the cat eyed sunglasses, uh, total kudos to how they've handled it as opposed to the over the top. What do you mean? Yellow spandex. Yeah, the the basic Hellcat aesthetic being the the very loud yellow, you know, spandex, uh, and then that kind of you know cat cowl, and totally agree they're they're vaguely echoing it here in a way that I think is really really satisfying because it's it's the best transfer over into the real world that we could possibly hope for. Again, you just you do a Google image search for Hellcat Marvel, and you know a lot of great art there, and it's. 
it's as ridiculous as most comic outfits, but maybe just a little bit more ridiculous. And, you know, again, wonderful job in making it so grounded in TV reality. We got Oscar, Matt. We did. And I felt like the actor was was bringing forth his sadness that he was only going to guest star in what I'll assume is this one episode, um, but that certainly he's not part of the main cast for every episode the way he was for season two. I feel like he took that emotion and sh- kind of you know pushed it into uh, Oscar giving that kind of awkward goodbye. Yes, even though he still lives in the building, it's going to be one of these things of the downstairs lady and the upstairs guy and you'll just pretend that that thing never happened and you're going to go back to be strangers and all that sadness was in there and uh and effectively so lastly what do you suppose is up with this sculpture that brant's sister got that he wants uh i'm gonna say that it is just your standard MacGuffin. Um, I don't think it's going to be a statue made out of a special meteorite from another planet, nor, you know, this is not vibranium. No, I think it's just going to be, this is the means through which he's hiring these people and, uh, and she's holding on to it. And that's, that's, you know, can't say it any better than that's the MacGuffin that people value. Therefore it has value, but what's the actual impact on the story or what's the value to the audience? Eh, not much. Let's check our mail drop. Here's what you have to say. Pete, take us to Reddit. Yes, Matt, where HQ Textbook writes in, I really appreciate these dudes' annoyance at Netflix on behalf of KR, believe he means Kristen Ritter there, and the cast slash crew for how the release has been done. This show is... IMO, in my opinion, of course. The best thing Marvel has ever done in Netflix is just sweeping it under the rug. That being said, I understand completely this is how the TV biz works. And so, so, so excited for season three. You know, it's funny. Every time I hop on Twitter, there's some people that we follow that literally daily or tweeting at marvel at hulu at whoever to say you know pick up daredevil pick up luke cage etc um least of all maybe iron fist but you know there's kind of that push and each time i'm like don't you know that there's lawyers preventing that and even if they were going to announce season four of jessica jones on hulu coming in 28 months that would then mean that you know, people need to say no to jobs at a certain point or, oh, man, we can't get Kristen Ritter to start to recur in Big Little Lies season three because for season four, she's going to have to exit and things like that. It stinks that the realities of show business have brought us here. But at the end of the day, it's not Netflix mom and Marvel dad that got together and had a kid with all these shows. It was a bunch of creative people and a bunch of money people who made a thing to sell. And now they're not going to sell it anymore. Luckily, Pete, all of our podcasts are like little podcast children that we want to keep forever. We want to keep them sustainable, and that is made possible by the people who visit patreon.com slash fantasticgeek, making sure that our back catalog and our future episodes are always going to be out there in the ether of internet. Whether it's much-needed equipment 
or it's a trip to a nearby point of interest like New York Comic Con or the Paley Center or whatever it would be, our peeps at patreon.com slash fantastic geek make us go. It takes but a dollar, 100 pennies to get you in the door and all sorts of exclusive content there awaits. Of course, Pete, the best treat, it's a freebie. It's talking to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,548 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word, like it today. Well, Pete, we are going to keep on rolling through this season of Jessica Jones. We will be back on Wednesday to talk episode 303. Of course, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on the horizon for next weekend. Then we will repeat it all again. Who knows, in the interim, is there going to be news about Watchmen for podcasting? Is there going to be news about the Picard series? Is there going to be news about The Mandalorian on Disney Plus? Who knows, Pete? We are ready with the breaking news button, but until then, I'm going to say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Oh, this is so much better than Hawk in the Shower, buddy. Bye.